Thank you. Or, I think so. Are you picking me up? Yep. You're good. Good to go. Thank you, Larry. All right. We are a fully functioning operation here. Let me open in a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Father, I'm really thankful to be here tonight. Just uh, thankful for uh, this church, for its ministries, uh, for uh, the people that meet here. I'm thankful for your word, for the book of Romans, specifically tonight, that we can read together and study. I pray that as we think about your righteousness, the fact that what you do is always right, uh, that that would resonate with us and have implications for how we worship you and serve you, obey you. I pray that our time together would become, we would become more like Christ, uh, but we need your strength and the work of the Spirit to accomplish that. Uh, so we ask for it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we are in chapter 9. We had just started chapter 9 last time on page 51. We said that verses 1 through 5 were a little bit of an introduction to this big section where the Apostle Paul expresses his deep anguish over the fact that most of his fellow countrymen, the Jewish people, were not accepting Christ. Uh, they were still, uh, in many cases, enemies of the gospel. So then that transitions to verse 6, where he makes his thesis statement, the big idea for the, these three chapters. Up there on the screen, the the Word of God has not failed. So just because there's many Jewish people in Paul's day and even today who do not accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Messiah, that doesn't mean that God is unfaithful to His promises. You know, it's been a while since we talked about this, but remember way back in chapter 1, we said that one of the big things that Paul's trying to do in this whole letter is to demonstrate that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. Everything that God does is always right. Specifically, He is right in making us right through giving us rightness, if I can put it that way. He gives us Christ's righteousness. He's right to do that. And in that way, He's making us, and then eventually someday, the whole world right. But Paul knows that a possible objection to that would be, well, what about all those promises that he made to the people of Israel? Does that call into question God's righteousness or his rightness? And Paul's answer to that is no, because God had never intended, he had never promised to save every Israelite. And that's what we had talked about starting in verses 6 through 13. We would put this chart up here on the screen where he had used Israel in two different ways. He said that not everyone who is a descendant of Jacob, not everyone who is of Israel, is truly an Israelite in a spiritual sense. And that's been understood two different ways, but I think as we go through the rest of these chapters, it's pretty clear that Paul means it in this way. That's the, that's the majority view, that there's a big group of Israelites so that would be everybody that's descended from Jacob who had his name changed to Israel. But only a certain remnant within that group was truly a spiritual descendant of Abraham and would receive the promises of a, of a new heaven and a new earth. So when Paul starts to address this objection, 
he says that not every descendant of Abraham was chosen. And I think this is roughly where we left off, right? The bottom of page 51, going to page 52, we had, I'm sorry, bottom of page 52 going to 53, we had talked about the fact that you could see God's choosing of one over the other, even in the choice of Isaac instead of Ishmael. So not everyone is Abraham's spiritual descendant. Not everyone will receive the promises just because they're physically descended from him. And Ishmael is a good example of that. Ishmael was Abraham's child. He was actually Abraham's oldest child. Humanly speaking, he would seem to have a favored status, but he wasn't the one who God chose. God actually intended to save Isaac, and that through Isaac, he would actually bring the blessing to the whole world. That's the end of verse 7 through verse 9. His second example is even stronger because, in, you know, in the case of Ishmael and Isaac, you had two boys who were half-brothers. You know, they had different mothers, uh, even though they had the same father. But in the case of Jacob and Esau, you had two boys who were twins, who had grown together in the same womb. They had the same mother and father. And again, Esau was the oldest by you know, just a few seconds or whatever it was. So humanly speaking, again, you would think he would be the favored one. But it was actually Jacob, who, who turns out to be something of a, a rascal as he grows up to be an adult, not particularly a well-behaved individual always. And he's the younger of the two brothers, but he's the one who actually is chosen. So let me just pick up there at the top of page 53, and I'll start reading from that first bullet point. So Paul's second example there, supporting his statement in verse 6b, is God's choice of Jacob over Esau, even though both boys were twins, conceived at the same time. That's what he says in verse 10. So unlike Isaac and Ishmael, these boys shared the same mother, and not only the same father, and were conceived together. God chose Jacob and not Esau before they were born. So Paul makes a big deal about that in verse 12. Before they were born, and before they had done anything, whether good or bad, and he had told Rebekah ahead of time about the choice. So let me just look at verse 12. So we're in uh, chapter 9 and verse 12. He says, Not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, so that would be the mother, Rebekah, she was told, now he's quoting from the Old Testament, the older will serve the younger. And then another Old Testament quotation, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So it wasn't the case that God waited until after they were born and watched to see what they have done. It's not even the case that God just looked into the future and saw how they would behave. Paul wants to make it really clear that it really had nothing to do with them. It was all about God and his mercy to one boy as opposed to the other boy, and it had nothing to do with their works. So at this point, it's important to note that Paul's reference to works in verse 12 must include all human effort or achievement, and not merely specific works associated with the Old Testament law. So the objection might be, well, yeah, but you know, Paul, he's talking to Jewish people, they're concerned about keeping the law, 
maybe circumcision, the Sabbath, the dietary laws. You know, Paul, Paul's against those things as being the basis of your, of your salvation, but he's not talking about works in general. And I would reply, I think he is. <laughs> I think what he says here applies to works in general. Why is that? I'll give you two reasons. First of all, Jacob and Esau, they, they were born before the law. <laughs> so when he starts talking about whether they've done good things or bad, he's not thinking within the context of the Old Testament law because they, like their grandfather Abraham, were born before the law. That's the same type of argument that well, Paul will make in the book of Galatians. So that'd be my first argument. Number two, I think Paul, he interchanges or he, he makes these two statements parallel. He has works and then he says anything good or bad. So I think anything good or bad includes anything good or bad. It's not specific to the Old Testament law. Uh, I think it would be a right implication for us if we're sharing the gospel or thinking about the gospel for ourselves to realize that this excludes any kind of effort or achievement on our part. Those things, whatever you put into that category of you did it, those can never be the basis for our salvation. The basis of our salvation always has to be outside of us. It's always in, in Christ and what he accomplished for us. So at this point, and I'm just trying to go through a different objections that maybe you're familiar with these, maybe you've thought of them, maybe eventually somebody else will bring these up. But another objection might be, well, yeah, but Paul, when he's talking about works, he's not including faith. You know, so faith could still be the basis of our salvation. So here the idea might be that God looked into the future and he saw whether you or I would express faith in Jesus Christ, whether we would exercise faith. And it's because of that faith that he bases our choice. Instead, so these people would argue that God's election is based on forcing faith, and they can point to places earlier in the letter where works and faith have been contrasted. But, however, this would be my response. If Paul believed that God's election and effectual calling were based on whether we had faith in Christ, he would have raised this in verses 14 and following, where he begins to answer objections regarding God's justice. So in just a moment, you know, we're going to flip the page and go a little further in Romans, and Paul keeps going through different objections. Basically, the argument is going to be, well, this just doesn't really sound fair. You know, God's not just if he does this. You know, why does he even hold us accountable for our sin if this is the way it operates? Well, if Paul knew in the back of his mind that this whole thing is based on our faith, that would have removed a lot of the tension. He would have said it, don't you think? But since he doesn't say it, I think it's a reasonable conclusion to say he doesn't believe it. He doesn't actually believe that that's the case. Our faith is the instrument by which we receive salvation, but our faith is never the basis of our salvation. The basis is always outside of us. It's always Jesus Christ. Also, this would be another response. If you argued for this position, so this position that faith is not included in what Paul's saying here, you would still have difficulty explaining how it is that certain sinners exercise faith in Christ. Why do some people believe and some people don't? I mean, we still have to come back to that argument, that question, really. What causes some people to trust in Christ and other people not to? 
Apart from God's regenerating work, why would some sinners choose to repent? And if we accept that the Bible teaches that God must work to cause us to repent and believe, then that means that God must also, at some point, have made a prior choice to extend the effectual call. One last objection. So this is the third one, and then we'll move a little further. Some people, as we go through this passage that speaks of the doctrine of election, they would say, well, yeah, but God chooses groups. He, he chooses nations. So this is about his choice of Israel as a nation. It's not really talking about his choice of individuals. You see how that argument would work possibly to kind of remove some of the tension? Okay, because to some people it wouldn't sound very fair if God was making choices about people, but they're pretty comfortable with the idea about him choosing groups. Okay, so that would be the objection. This would be my response, and these, these three points here I took from Moo's commentary. Number one, Paul's emphasis on the conception and birth of these men seems to fit better with an, inv- an individual rather than a corporate emphasis. You know, why even start talking about people? Why make a big deal about the two boys growing up in the same womb? It seems like he is talking about individuals. Number two, the use of words such as election, call, and works, which Paul has used earlier in the letter to speak of individual salvation, indicates that he's likely still speaking of that same topic. So in the previous chapter that we looked at, he was using this same type of language to very clearly talk about individuals being saved. That calling, remember I said it's a call with a hand. It's a, it's a calling that reaches out and actually grabs us and brings us to Christ. It would be very strange if he had been using that type of language to talk about individuals being saved, and then all of a sudden just switch and use the same type of language for a completely different topic. It would be more natural if he's talking about the same thing. Number three, and I think this is the most important argument, the corporate election of nations would not support Paul's assertion in verse 6 that some individuals within Israel were not actually the spiritual children of Abraham. You see how that argument would work? I mean, if this all is all about God choosing nations, well, that just kind of goes completely against what Paul's thesis statement is. He's trying to address the issue that within the nation, there's a large group of people, most of the Jewish people, most of his fellow countrymen, are still the way he was before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. I think as we go through this, we we have to remember that Paul isn't being hard-hearted. Paul's not being cruel. Remember where we left off last time? He actually said, I wish I could trade places with them. I wish I could be accursed for them because they're cut off for Christ. So this is is a man who's who's emotional. He's deeply... uh, caring about his fellow countrymen, uh, the, all of these truth that, truths that he's going to go through about God's sovereignty and salvation in no way diminishes the compassion and the concern that he has for individuals within that nation. So that was the, the first section. The second section then is, well, basically, if, if we agree with you, Paul, everything that you just said in that previous paragraph you're saying that God never intended to save every Israelite. Well, then the possible objection that gets raised in verse 14 
is this, is that mean that God is unjust? Is God unjust in not saving all of them? So first of all, Paul addresses two questions. I'm going back to the notes there on page 54. Two questions raised by his teaching in the previous section. First, is God unjust for not saving all Jewish people? That's going to be verse 14. And then in a little bit, second, if God chooses some for salvation, why does he hold the non-elect responsible? That's verse 19. And I think, I think if we're honest, uh, it's a pretty common experience as Christians to, to struggle with these questions. These are the types of questions that we all have thought probably at one point in our life. And this is, would be one of the clearest passages in Scripture that directly answers those for us. So Paul's response to the first objection is a strong not at all. You know, God forbid, may it never be. You know, this is his, his favorite very strong no that he's used several times now in the letter. So is God unjust? He says absolutely not. You know, he's, he's not going to entertain that for a second. His, his support for that comes from Exodus 33:19. So you can see on the slide, I tried to show you, that his answer is no, but then he gives two reasons why it's no. And both times he gives a reason, he's quoting from the Old Testament. So first, it's a no because of what God said in Exodus 33:19, And second, it's a no because of what Exodus 9:16 says. So what does Exodus 33:19 says? Well, it says that God is free to choose those who will receive his mercy and compassion. God's mercy, that's probably what Paul means by it in this verse, 16, does not depend on human will or effort. So let me just read verses 15 through 16 for us. He says, for, you see that at the beginning of verse 15, so that's his little indicator that I'm about ready to give you support or reason for what I just said. For, this is what Moses says, or God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then his implication of that passage is, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And then his second one comes in verses 17 through 18. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now we'll have to keep thinking through this, because at first glance this might not seem like a very good answer to the objection. But Paul seems to think it's a good answer. So we have to listen carefully to what he's saying and make sure we understand it. Is there any difference between the two Old Testament quotations? Well, if there is, I think maybe it's that the second one adds something. So the first one, it just implies that God has freedom to show mercy. God is the creator. He has absolutely all of the freedom to extend mercy to whoever he wills. If he's not free, then it's not mercy. You see how that works? It can only be mercy. It can only be his, his compassion and grace if he's choosing of his own will to extend it. If he's under some kind of compulsion, if he has to do it, if he's forced to do it, then it's not mercy. It's not grace. 
But the second one adds the detail that he also has freedom to harden. That's perhaps a more difficult truth for some of us to accept, right? I think for all of us, it has a, has a tension to it. But again, he quotes from Exodus. It's the story of Pharaoh. That Pharaoh was hardened by God so that he would not listen to Moses. He would not let the people of Israel go so that God could keep putting the plagues upon the nation of Egypt and ultimately so that Pharaoh and his army would be destroyed in the Red Sea. And why is the ultimate reason? Well, it's the same ultimate reason for anything that happens in the universe. It's so that God would be glorified. Uh, you, you can, you know, if somebody asks you why did something happen, there can be steps in the chain. So there can be immediate reasons or secondary reasons why God does things or why things happen. But if we keep going up that chain of why, 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 where we finally stop is always because God. Because God is always the answer to that chain. And it's because he's choosing to display his glory. Well, someone might then, might then respond, but didn't Pharaoh harden his own heart? That could be a, an objection. Yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but he only did it after Pharaoh first decided to harden his own. Have you heard this type of objection? But I think that doesn't hold up underneath a close scrutiny of the story in Exodus. If you actually go back and look at the story of Exodus, this is in chapter 4. This is when God first appeared to Moses and told him to go to Pharaoh. This is what God said to Moses. When you return to Egypt... See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord said, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son." So God, from the very get-go, he's not only saying, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, he's also saying that this is going to be the progression that happens. It's actually going to lead to the, what we now know to be the very last of those plagues where Pharaoh's son was taken in judgment. So in the middle of that uh, paragraph there on the bottom of page 54, however... While Paul, while God, not Paul, while God has to actively do something to the heart of the elect in order to bring them to salvation, that is, he gives them the new birth, so he actively has to give us the new birth, for the non-elect, he simply allows them to go their own way and receive the just consequences of their actions. In other words, while both sides involve God's active decision, only one requires God to change the course of a person's life actively. And thus God is not responsible for the sin of the non-elect. This is a truth that, that requires putting many different pieces of Scripture together. But the way it's commonly described is that God chooses to do things. He has a decree for all things. And when it comes to the salvation of individuals, he's making a choice on both sides. You can't really say God chooses to save some people and not say that he's also choosing not to save others. You, you really just, 
even logically. I don't think you can have one without the other. But if we stop there, that's not saying enough. Right? We have to go a little bit deeper. When God makes that choice to save one and not to save the other, on the one hand, he's making a choice to do something to them, to actually reach down and change their heart. That's what we call the new birth. On the other side, he's making a choice not to do something. He's allowing them to continue on the direction that their heart already wants to go. He's making a choice to give them more freedom, to not do anything different to them. And so the way this is sometimes referred to is it's asymmetric. So symmetrical would mean that both sides are exactly the same. Asymmetrical means that God actively makes two choices, but there is some difference to those two choices. So I give you a footnote there. I don't usually read through the footnotes, but just because this is it's kind of an important concept, and it is a difficult one, and you kind of know the drill by now. I like to have quotes in my notes and my slides. Christians have been thinking about these types of things for a very long time, and so we can benefit from listening to what other Christians have said. So I got this from the uh, Bible Doctrine book by MacArthur and Mayhew. And I highlighted the parts where they're talking about the asymmetrical nature of God's two decrees. It says, In the case of the elect, God actively intervenes, setting his love on them, determining to appoint Christ as their Savior, and to send the Spirit to sovereignly quicken them from spiritual death unto new life in Christ. So those are all things that God has to decide to do. He has to do them for us. But in the case of the non-elect, however, he does not intervene, but he simply passes them by, choosing to leave them in their state of sinfulness and then to punish them for their sin. While he's the efficient cause of the blessedness of the elect, he's not the efficient cause of the wretchedness of the non-elect. Rather, he ordains them to destruction by means of secondary causes." That's, that's more of a, a technical way of putting it. If you, put, if you flip the page, page 55, I have a quote here. I think this is perhaps an easier illustration of this. This is from R.C. Sproul. As we know, he's an excellent teacher who just has a gift sometimes for putting things simply. And this is what, how he put it. He says, all that God has to do is harden people's hearts. All God has to do to harden people's hearts is to remove the restraints. He gives them a longer leash. Rather than restricting their human freedom, he increases it. He lets them have their own way. In a sense, he gives them enough rope to hang themselves. It's not that God puts his hand on them to create fresh evil in their hearts. He merely removes his holy hand of restraint from them and lets them do their own will. So that's his explanation for what's happening in Pharaoh's life in the Exodus account, and I think it's accurate. And I think it also accurately describes what God does for all of the non-elect. So this is a concept that shows up in other places in the New Testament, this, or even the Old Testament, this idea of God restraining or letting people go. So the next bullet point, God restrains sin so that humans are not as bad as they could be. So 2 Thessalonians 2.6 talks about God restraining. But he also sometimes withdraws this restraint for some greater purpose. So in that same passage there in 2 Thessalonians 2, it says that God sends a powerful delusion. 
So he actually allows people to be deceived and have an even greater delusion. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10, when the prophet Isaiah sees the Son of God high and lifted up, and he's commissioned to go out and preach, he's told, but they won't listen to you. You're going to have a ministry of preaching, but I'm going to harden the eyes of the people. I'm going to close their eyes. I'm going to close their ears so they won't actually listen, and they're going to go into exile. I'll stop there for a second. Any, any questions or thoughts so far about that first paragraph? So that's, that's Paul's answer to the, the first objection, and then he's going to raise a second one in verse 19. All right, we'll, we'll keep on going then. So third bullet point there. The second objection regards whether it's right for God to hold the non-elect responsible since he's chosen their ultimate destiny and no one can resist his will. So this is what he says in verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? And Paul's answer to that essentially is it's not right for a creature to question their creator. He doesn't really give an answer. His answer is we shouldn't ask the question, right? That the question itself is inappropriate. We're, we're not in a position to pass judgment on our creator because we're one of the creatures. We're, we're inside the creation. He's, he's outside of it. There's just God and there's everything else and everything else was made by God. And the things that are in that everything else they don't have the right to look on the outside and pass judgment on the one who made them. And he illustrates this with his, his famous illustration here of the, the potter. And this isn't unique to Paul. He's actually taking these words from Isaiah 29, verse 16, where he likens the Creator to a potter who has the right to take humanity. So he calls all of humanity a lump of clay. And out of that same lump, you can make pottery that's for very special purposes, so that would be people who are destined for salvation, but you also, as the potter from that piece of clay, you could make very common uses. So in a household, they would have had lots of things made out of clay. Some of them would have been very special, the type of things that you only get out and use when the guests, the company comes over, and you would have had other pots that would have been for more everyday uses, dirty uses, right? But the same potter out of the same clay can make both pots. And then in verses 22 through 23, Paul clarifies that that potter analogy describes the two fates of humanity. Our Creator does not owe us anything, so He's not showing partiality by withholding grace. So this is what he says there in verse 22 and following. He says, What if God, although choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also for, from the Gentiles. So he basically, in these verses, and then he's going to extend this with some Old Testament quotation, is saying that God had good reasons to endure having objects of wrath. One of those reasons that Paul points to is that by having objects of wrath, God was able to demonstrate three things. His, his wrath, 
his power and also his mercy. That does seem to make sense, right? He can only demonstrate that he's merciful if he also demonstrates that he has wrath towards sin. That participle there where, where Paul says, although choosing, in verse 22, you see that little phrase there, although choosing, it, it's probably better translated as because he willed. So because he decided or because he willed to have, in verse 22, these objects of wrath. And he's endured this because having objects of wrath allows him to show his wrath, his power, and his mercy for us. Notice also there that this same asymmetrical idea that I showed you on that previous slide, I think it does show up again in this paragraph. It's, it's a little bit subtle, I admit. But I think Paul's being very careful with his words. Everything that happens in this universe is always because of God's decreed will. He's in complete control over his universe, but he doesn't do everything the same way. Sometimes he's the, the, the immediate cause. Sometimes he uses secondary causes. So there's vessels prepared in advance for glory at the end of verse 23, and there's other vessels prepared for destruction. So he he adds that word of being prepared in advance. In verse 23, the second part, God is clearly the subject, and the verb is in the active voice. So it's, it's God doing it. He's preparing. But when, it, when he was talking about the objects of wrath in verse 22, not only does he switch and use a different word for prepared, but instead of making it active, he makes it passive. Right, so an active verb is like, I kicked the dog. Right? A passive verb would be like, I was kicked. Like somebody else is doing it to me. So it's a very subtle shift in his language. But I think Paul's being clear here that, yes, God is ultimately responsible for both pieces because he's the potter, but he does them in different ways. I think he's trying to preserve God's accountability or God's blame in this whole process. So let's try to wrap that up there at the top of page 56. So Paul uses the potter analogy to point to God's freedom as creator to make creatures for whatever ultimate destiny he so chooses. This point fits into his overall argument by pointing to God's freedom to not save all ethnic Israelites. So you see how that would work? That God, God has good reasons for not saving every Israelite. God's not obligated to tell us the reasons, but he at least gave us some hints through his prophet Paul. Through Paul, we actually got a little bit of the, a glimpse into why God might do this. Salvation is always by grace, and it was never guaranteed to all who were physically descended from Abraham. So to summarize, both the elect and the non-elect have been prepared by God. This language of preparation refers to God's decree of what we sometimes call election and reprobation. However, in reprobation, God merely passes by certain individuals, and he doesn't extend them saving grace. Um, therefore, I think he holds each person accountable to his, justice, to his justice to display the glory of his justice. It's a, tough, it's a tough doctrine. Calvin rightly referred to the doctrine of reprobation as a fearful decree. However, as God intended, it magnifies his mercy to us who are saved. It will also be the part of the basis, or will be part of the basis for Paul's doxology 
when we get to the end of this section in verses 33 through 36 of chapter 11. So Calvin's right. It's a, it's a fearful a fearful decree. It's not a pleasant topic. It's a difficult topic. I think it doesn't fully satisfy all of the questions that we have about it, but that also makes sense, right? It makes sense that we as the creatures wouldn't fully understand what our Creator is up to, what good purposes He might have for doing things. All right, we got to stop here in a minute for a break, but any, any questions there over that big section? Yes? Um, in the Old Testament, there's a section where it says um, you, you will find him if you seek for him, you seek him with all your heart. Yes. Now, is that, would that be under God's preparation for that person to be saved? Because it almost makes it sound like the person is doing it out of his own volition rather than being called. Yeah, I think there's a clear difference in the Bible between God's general call that goes out to all people, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus says in the Gospels, right? Or we're going to see in just a moment when we come back from the break from Isaiah. God says to Isaiah, I'm holding out my hands to the people and I'm inviting them to call. But then there's a different kind of call. It's the one I called a, a call with a hand. We call it the effectual call. It's a special call. It actually brings people. So I think in the passage you quoted, that would be the general call that goes out to all people. If you do seek me, you will find me. But the problem is that that call by itself, if that's all we received, we, none of us would listen to it. None of us would seek after God. There's nothing within us that would cause us to want to follow God, to want to seek Him. So God has to add to that general call a special call. He has to regenerate us. He has to give us the new birth so that we are able to turn from our sins and put our trust in Christ. And I think what Paul's talking about in this passage is that God is free then to just send that special call out to some people. And he never promised that he would save everyone, even within Israel. All right, let's take a break then. We'll take a break and come back in 10 minutes. Go ahead and uh, get started again. So we are we're on page 56, and I'll pick up with point three there, page 56. So in the, this little section here, verses 24 through 29, Paul's just supporting what he left off with, the fact that God has good reasons for hardening some people. One of those reasons that he referred to was the fact that it shows his mercy to those of us who he does save. And Paul just said, and that group of people who he does save includes both Jewish people and, and Gentiles. And he knows that in the church in Rome, he has both people sitting there who are going to hear this letter. And so he, port, he supports that really quickly with four quick references to the, the Old Testament. So the first two come from Hosea, and the second two come from Isaiah. So let's talk about the Hosea ones first, that first bullet point. In verse 25, Paul uses language, not an exact quote, from Hosea 2.23. So the New Testament writers will do that sometimes. You know, if we, I think it's, as a general rule, it's really helpful if, if a New Testament writer quotes from the Old Testament. I think you've heard me say this before. You should go look it up and see the whole context. But one of the things that 
sometimes could surprise us when we do that is that the wording doesn't exactly match. There's a couple different reasons for that. One is they're always doing translations, right? So they're, they, they're having to translate the Old Testament into Greek, and then we're taking it from Greek into English. So things get lost in translation. The other reason for that is they don't use quotation marks. So quotation marks are something that we've kind of invented recently. And when we put things in quotation marks, that means it has to be exact, or else you're not being fair to the author. But they don't do that. So sometimes they're paraphrasing. Sometimes they're summarizing. They're still being true to the original intentions of that Old Testament writer. They're still treating it respectfully as Scripture, but they're not claiming to be quoting it exactly, because that's not really a concept that I think they would have readily understood. So it's not an exact quote, but it definitely seems to be language taken from Hosea 2.23. So if you go back and you look up Hosea, that passage there predicts God's restoration of the nation of Israel after a time in which she has been treated as not being God's people. Remember in Hosea, that's acted out through the relationship between Hosea and his wife. Paul seems to see in this passage a principle that can be applied to Gentiles today. If God was willing to withhold mercy from idolatrous Israel, only to again show mercy to her in the end time, then God is also free to extend mercy to pagan Gentiles after they've gone through millennia of not being his people. So I think Paul's his, his intentions here are consistent with Hosea's intention. In Hosea, it's God saying to the people of Israel, because of your blatant idolatry, you've, you've gone all the way into Baal worship. You're completely not acting like my children. And because of that, you won't be my people. You'll go through a period of time where you won't be my people, and then someday I will restore you again, like a new restoring of marriage vows, and you will be my people again. I think Paul sees in that a pattern where if God can do that with Israel, he can make them from people to not people to people again, then he also could be free with us, who were formerly pagans and not his people, to make us his people. And I think to take it a step further, he sees that in Hosea, Hosea is already drawing on earlier Old Testament writers. So this concept of the people of Israel becoming a not people while people who weren't the people, the Gentiles, do enter into a relationship with God, this was already set up for us. So this would be one passage. This is Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 19 through 21. Forgive me if I've said this before, because I know I do repeat myself, but this is a pretty important Old Testament passage. If you remember, this is the song that God gave to Moses in order to teach the people of Israel so that they would sing it throughout their history, and it would remind them of what God had done for them in the past, and it would also remind them of what God was going to do in the future. There's something catchy and memorable about songs, right? If God had just given them a big propositional truth to memorize, that would have been hard. But if you turn it into a song and you regularly sing it, then it's memorable. So some people have actually described Deuteronomy chapter 32 as Israel's national anthem. So it's a pretty significant Old Testament passage that serves as the background to many New Testament passages. And in that song, one of the things that God is teaching them is that even though they have been adopted as His children, and they're supposed to act like He acts because He's their Father, 
They instead, because they don't have a heart that can follow his law, they're going to act inconsistent with their adoption. And he's actually going to have to bring judgment upon them. He's going to have to bring curses. So this is what the song says. It says, the Lord saw this and he rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is no God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious of those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. So what God is saying there is you eventually will follow things that aren't truly God's and treat them as if they're not God's. So I'm going to bring you to repentance. I'm going to cause you to be envious by people who aren't people. See how that works? He's, he's using parallelism. Well, who are these no people people? They're us. They're the Gentiles, the people who, who were lost in their sins, were estranged from God. Someday they're going to be saved, and it's going to cause Israel to be envious and actually be an instrument that God uses to bring them to repentance. So I, I show you this verse because this is a pattern that was all the way back before the people of Israel even went into the promised land. So that when Hosea starts talking about people and no people, He's drawing from earlier passages. This would be another passage. This is Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 through 2. Here's God speaking. He says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. That's us. That's, that's us as the Gentiles. We weren't, we weren't looking for God. We weren't seeking him. But God came and found us. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I. Here am I. But all day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. So this is God uh, in the 700s BC predicting Israel's future. He's saying, I'm actually going to save people who currently aren't looking for me, but at the same time I will still hold out my hands to you and obstinate people and invite you to come, to come to me. All right. And I don't think it's a stretch to think that Paul's thinking of these two passages, because when we go a little bit further, he's actually going to quote both of those. So I think he's already thinking of them when he picks Hosea. I think that explains a little bit of why Hosea seems to be a strange choice, because Hosea is also using this no people language. All right. In verse 26, that'd be the next bullet point, Paul quotes from Hosea 1.10 to make essentially the same point as earlier. In Hosea 1.10, the people of Israel, after having gone through a long time in which God could say of them, you are not my people, would one day again be called children of the living God. And remember, that's such an important part of Hosea's preaching, that Hosea actually acts out a parable with the relationship with his wife, right? She becomes unfaithful, but he's supposed to welcome her back and restore their marriage because it's a picture of what God will someday do with the people of Israel. So then in verses 27 through 28, Paul then takes wording from Isaiah. So I say he essentially quotes, because it's not exact. And he adds this little phrase, the number of the Israelites. So he takes some wording from Hosea and actually attaches it to the Isaiah passage. But he's making the similar point here. 
that like Hosea 1.10, the passage in Isaiah speaks of Israel's restoration after judgment. So after addressing God's mercy towards undeserving Gentiles in verses 25 through 26, Paul now directly speaks to the mercy that God will show one day to Israel. So yes, as an overall big point in this section, he's trying to emphasize that it was never God's intention to save every Israelite, but I think he's already looking ahead to what he's going to talk about, but there, yes, there will be a great salvation of Israelites. That someday, through God's saving work and through his judgment, there will be a nation of Israel that's restored, that's saved. And that would be consistent with Hosea's message. Verse 29, Paul quotes then from Isaiah 1.9, where the prophets acknowledge that if God had not graciously preserved a remnant within Israel, the nation would have ended up like Sodom and Gomorrah. It would have disappeared. So look at verse 29 the very last verse of that section. He says, It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Those are the, the greatest example of two cities that have ceased to exist, right? You can't even find them on a map today. We, we have no real good indication of where those cities were Although when Lot, remember, had to make that choice between him and Abraham of where they were going to live, he chose that area because it looked attractive. Big, prosperous cities and a fertile plain, but they were completely destroyed and wiped out because of their, their, their sin. But in Hosea chapter 11, so I think, again, if Paul's thinking about the whole story of Hosea, God specifically says, I can't do to Israel what I did to those cities of the plain. I can't wipe them out completely. They can't cease to exist because I've made promises to them. So that someday I have to reach out and save them. So it's not going to be every other, it's not going to be every Israelite, and it's not going to be all Israelites now, but someday their rejection will be lifted. And that's setting us up for the next section. Any, any quick questions there? Oh. So four uses the Old Testament. The first two are, are kind of tricky because if you go to Hosea, they don't immediately seem to be saying the same thing that Paul is saying. But I think within the whole context of the book of Hosea and also what Deuteronomy 32 said, I, th I think they make sense. All right, we'll go to the next section then. So I'm quoting here uh, from Nicelli's little commentary on Romans. So that was another book that I recommended. If you're looking for another small book that would be like nice for a Bible study or like an adult Bible uh, fellowship class, it's another small commentary, similar in size to the one by Moo that some of you are reading. This is what he says. So Romans 9, 6 through 29 is Paul's first step to vindicate God regarding what he promised Israel. The next step addresses this question. Why are so many Israelites not part of spiritual Israel? So you see how that's kind of a different question? So yes, it wasn't God's intention to save every Israelite. But someone might say, but yes, God, but did you have to not save so many of them? Why so many? And why such a long period of time, right? Especially from our perspective now. We're, we're looking at 2,000 years of history since the people of Israel rejected Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. 
And we've seen that their exile has been long and painful. I mean, we've even had recent expressions of that that are, that are in our minds right now. And so the question might be, but yet, God, did you have to do it this way? Did you have to not save so many Israelites? Well, you would assume then, this is picking up from Nicelli, one might presume that Paul would simply reply, God did not elect them. That could have been an easy way to answer, right? Although that is theologically correct, it's only part of the answer. And perhaps surprisingly, not what Paul emphasizes in this next section. Paul emphasizes the human reason. Israelites are responsible and culpable for not believing in Christ. So the answer to the question, well, God, why, why didn't you save more of them? The way Paul answers that is it was extended to all of them. It was available to all of them. It was clearly stated to them. It's, it's their responsibility for not accepting. Two parallel things in the Bible, always side by side, that we have, to, we have to keep together. It's like we're going down a road and there's a ditch on both sides. We have to remember that God is, is sovereign and He does what He wills, but He also holds us responsible for our decisions. Some of you were in the Matthew class with me last year, right? We saw this back-to-back in paragraphs in Jesus' teaching. Remember, he, in Matthew, he praises God at the end of, of chapter uh, 12 because God has chosen to hide things from some people and reveal them to others. It's a very clear statement about his sovereignty. And then in the very next paragraph, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, for I am lowly and gentle of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. I mean, it's a very clear evangelistic call to the gospel. And Jesus himself saw no tension to talking about the two of those side by side. And here you have the Apostle Paul doing the exact same thing. He's just talked about God's sovereignty, but then he's also willing to hold his countrymen responsible for their rejection of Christ. So that's the, that's the big idea. That's his response. But then on the slide, you can see that he, he elaborates and he supports this. So that's what we'll work through here. So looking at our first little paragraph, verses 30 through 33, he says, Gentiles who were not looking for righteousness obtained it by trusting in Christ, while Jewish people seeking righteousness did not. So that's verses 30 through 31. You can, you can check that out make sure I'm doing that accurately, but that seems to be what he's saying, that people who weren't looking for righteousness, they found it. I hope you can see yourself in that tonight. You weren't looking for it, but God found you. But there were very religious, devout people like Saul the Pharisees who were seeking to find righteousness through keeping the law, and it was actually evading them. They actually couldn't find him. Rather than trusting in Christ, they stumbled over him. That's what he says in verse 33. Instead of quoting a single Old Testament passage, Paul combines a bunch of different wording. So it's wording from Isaiah 28.16 with wording from Isaiah 8.14. So again, he's just paraphrasing. He just wants to show that this is consistent with the Old Testament's message. He's not trying to quote a specific verse. Both passages in Isaiah refer to the Messiah as a stone on which people will either build their lives or find security. So Jesus doesn't change. He is the same to all of us. 
What changes is our response to Jesus. He's a rock either way. He either is going to be a rock that we build our lives on. You can't help but hear his parable of the wise builder, right, when you hear that? He's either going to be a rock that we build our lives on or he's going to be a rock that we trip over and stumble. And Paul's sadly concluding that most of his countrymen have tripped over the Messiah and they've stumbled. And because of that, they will fall at the final judgment. Okay, So that's his... His first response there is that many of them were trying to obtain righteousness on their own through the law. And that was never a way of obtaining it, not even during the Old Testament period. Number two, in verses 10 through, or chapter 10, 1 through 4, he makes it clear that he desperately wants to see his countrymen saved. Paul explains further how it was that Jewish people were pursuing righteousness by works and thus failed to reach their goal. They were trying to obtain righteousness through zealous observance of the Mosaic law. So let me just read those first three verses. So he says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ, the Messiah, is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So I think this would rule out, you know, if we're just thinking about practical applications, this would rule out the view that the Jewish people are somehow going to be saved in some kind of second way apart from Christ. That error has periodically crept up within Christian circles. We might be rightly sympathetic towards the Jewish people. We might be very rightly concerned about their plight. But it would be a wrong response to think that they'll somehow get saved in the end, apart from the way that you and I got saved. The only way that any of us will ever be saved is by repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus, recognizing who Jesus is, that he perfectly kept God's law, that he's righteousness, and that he died in our place on the cross. The Jewish people also have to come to that realization. Paul's not setting up some other alternative way by which they can come to this. And in fact, he sees them as very religious, very zealous. So that was a very common way that the Pharisees would have referred to themselves. They were zealous for the law, like remember Phineas who took that spear and stuck it through the two people who were sending near the, te the temple. Phineas was known as someone who was zealous for the law. The Pharisees would have seen him as their, their hero, and they would have been zealous for their law. But Paul said it was a zeal that wasn't according to knowledge. It wasn't actually based on truth, and the ultimate expression of their, their error was the fact that they had rejected Christ. Let's go to page 58. He says there in verse 4 that they failed to see that Christ was the goal to which the law pointed. So that little word culmination there in verse 4, it can be translated different ways. It can mean goal or end. But in a sense, the two are really saying the same thing. If I, if I reach the end of the race, I've actually also reached the goal, right? If the law pointed to something and said that was going to be the end, 
by pointing, it was also the goal of the law. It was the culmination. Jesus as the Messiah, he was the one that the Old Testament law always pointed to. Let's, let's just look at one of these passages. So I don't have this on a slide. So let's look at it in, in the book of Deuteronomy again. So if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, this would just be one place you could go to that would say that the Old Testament law pointed to Jesus. So this is again from that Song of Moses that I was talking about. This is how the song ends. So after God has been displeased with the people of Israel and he's brought curses upon them, that's not the end of the story because look how the song ends. It ends in verse 43. It says, Rejoice, you nations. So that'd be the Gentiles. Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. So how was God going to make atonement for the land and for his people? As the rest of the Old Testament progresses, it becomes very clear. He's going to do it by sending the suffering servant. It's going to be God himself who comes and dies in their place. At least by the time you get to Isaiah 53, that's very clear. And Paul can see that now as a believer, that the law all along had been pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, who would make atonement for the people. It was never going to be through trying to keep God's law in your own efforts. So the very end of that paragraph, and it's the end of my paragraph here, makes it clear that this righteousness that comes from God is available to everyone who believes in Christ. So one of Paul's responses to, well, why hasn't God saved more Jewish people? His response would be, well, it was available to everyone. The message went out and it was available to everyone who believed. Now, he's going to support that in verses 5 through 8. So there's a little word for there that shows up in some of our English translations in verse 5. Again, it shows that he's supporting his statement that this righteousness from God is available to everyone. Receiving righteousness through faith and not by keeping the law is the, consistent with the message of the Old Testament. So that everyone in verse 4 includes people who lived before Christ and were under the Mosaic law. So it's not like this is a new way of getting saved now because Jesus has come. This is the way that people had always been saved. Even when the law of Moses was in operation, it was always received through faith. Moses himself had said that the only perfect obedience to the law led to eternal life. So if you look at verse 5, he's quoting there from Leviticus. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. So the law of Moses had, had held out this hypothetical righteousness that you could receive, but you could only receive it by doing, by keeping the law perfectly. And it was something that a true believer would always recognize they were unable to do. They were actually sinners. Therefore, even under the Mosaic law, mankind could only be right with God by receiving righteousness through faith. The other Old Testament quotations sprinkled through verses 6 through 13 all support the point that this righteousness is available to both Jews and Gentiles who trust in the Messiah but is not achieved through human effort. I think that's all pretty straightforward, and that's things that we've already talked about in the passage. 
In verses 9 through 10, the way this righteousness is received is made very clear. So these are probably verses that many of us know, we have them memorized, but maybe now we're thinking with fresh eyes about how they fit into the context. He's making it very clear that anybody, including his fellow Jewish people, if they confess that Jesus is Lord and they believe that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. And then he also says they will be justified, which is two ways of saying the same thing. Saved and justified are the same thing. Well, how are we saved? How are we justified? How, how can you and I know that we're part of that golden chain that we looked at last week of the people who will be glorified? Well, it's if we acknowledge who Jesus clearly is, that he is our Lord. And I think that implies both his deity and his lordship over us. I don't think you can separate those two things. Some people would like to emphasize his deity, but they would exclude the fact that he's our Lord and he has rule over us. But that's not much of a deity, right? If he doesn't have lordship, his lordship implies, I mean, I'm sorry, his deity implies lordship. If he is our God, if Jesus is the Son of God, if he's our creator, and if you truly recognize that, that by necessity comes with a willingness to bow to him, to be submissive to him. As he himself said, take my yoke upon you. It's an easy yoke because it comes with the work of the Spirit. He enables you to hold it, but it is still a yoke. He still calls us to follow. So, first of all, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Second, he says, if you believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be justified. These are truths clearly revealed in Scripture. And those who are born again will gladly confess them. So I don't think we should take a minimalist approach that says, like, well, these are, the, these are the facts. Believe these two facts and you're good. And then other clear things that the Bible teaches, those are optional. That's not how it works. Anything that God clearly tells us, we have to believe. A true believer, when they hear the clear teaching of Scripture, should, should welcome it. I think we do have to allow for confusion. We have to allow for growth. I think we have to allow for Christians sometimes to hold things inconsistently that they haven't quite thought through. But there are basic truths that God's revealed to us in the Scripture. And when we hear those, if we're a born-again person, we, we welcome and accept them. And at the top of that list would have to be who Jesus is and what he accomplished on his cross and resurrection. It's not just that but it definitely does include that. So first of all, I encourage you, don't take a minimalist approach. Second thing I'd caution with this verse is it's not a two-step process. So it's not like confessing and believing are two different things. It's actually the same thing being described two different ways. He uses confessing and believing because he's thinking here of Deuteronomy 30, 14. So Deuteronomy 30 is another important passage for Paul because it's the passage that talks about Israel's future salvation. So I think that's influencing his language. He's not talking about a two-step process. And then finally, as he makes clear in verse 12, there's only one way of salvation available to both Jews and Gentiles. Everyone who truly trusts in Christ is willing to confess him as Lord, and those who genuinely acknowledge him as Lord, trust in him as their Savior, and again, this is consistent with the Old Testament's message 
that those who call on the Lord will be saved when God's judgment comes. So I, I passed over some parentheses there, but in verse 11, he takes wording from Isaiah 28. In verse 13, he's using wording from Joel 2.32. Why does Paul keep doing this? Why does he keep sprinkling in all of this wording from Old Testament? You know, does he just like us doing sword drills and looking up passages? What's, what's he up to? Well, he's trying to make a point that this is the way that salvation has always been. And this was something that was revealed in the Old Testament. So even his fellow Pharisees who are missing this, it's not God's fault. God's not culpable. They're actually culpable because they're not listening to what Scripture clearly says. All right. I'll stop for a second there for questions. And if there's no questions, I can keep on going. We've got about 10 minutes left. Yes? Maybe it's just me, but I, I've always wondered um, why the Jewish people, uh, a lot of them, turned away and didn't accept that Christ was the Messiah because it's all there. Mm -hmm. It's and he was Jewish, and it seems to me, you know, even in our day, we're all about the people of our family or our ancestors or people we know that, you know, fame or whatever, or people in the family that have done something or are somebody. You know, you would think they just gravitate to that. Yes. So I'm wondering why they chose not to. Yeah, so it seems to me that the answer would have to be that it's a moral problem instead of an intellectual problem. So we could flip that question around. So instead of asking, why did so many not accept, we could ask, why did some accept? So why, why do some of us accept the gospel? Well, it's ultimately not because we are smarter than other people or we, it just clicked for us or the person who shared the gospel was just really clever and articulate. It's because God was kind to us. We love Him because He first loved us. So if we turn the question around and we ask, well, why do some people accept? It seems like the answer has to be because God regenerates our hearts, because He saves us. And He has chosen not to do that for all people, both all Gentiles and all Jewish people. So it's, it's, not, it's not a mental problem. They know the scriptures. There's people today, that's the sad truth, there's people today who have dedicated their whole life to studying scripture. Like in academic circles, if you think of like the top research universities in the world, there's more people studying scripture who are probably unregenerate than there are that are regenerate. It's like a strange thing. People ask me all the time, why do, why do people who don't really believe the Bible spend so much time studying it? It's because it's interesting to them. They find intellectual curiosity in it. Uh, they, it's like a good piece of literature. They're really into history. So a lot of people are, you know, they're into all the novelties of Scripture, but it, they just don't ex welcome it. They don't love it. They don't treasure it. And so then the next question we have to ask, well, well then why do some of us feel differently? You know, why, why are we here on a Wednesday night when we could be doing other things and we're reading Scripture together and we love it and it resonates with us? Why, why is that? It's because God was kind to us, and He changed our hearts. We were spiritually blind, and He gave us sight. We, we had ears that couldn't hear, like Isaiah says, but He gave us ears. Right? That, that I think, has got to be the answer to it. Yeah.
and your mother said, what, when you come into your kingdom, can this one be at my right side and the other one at the left side? So they were expecting a kingdom that was worldly and they were going to throw the Romans mm-hmm. out. Um, and then when you read Isaiah 53 and you get the description of the Messiah, it doesn't, he doesn't fit that, that view. Yeah. I, I think that is part of it. There, there, was, there was part of it where he didn't meet their expectations. I think that's true. Um, but I think there's also, there's some people who, even though he came in an unlikely way, they still accepted him. So you remember how Luke's gospel starts? Luke wants to make it really clear that Jesus, even though he's unexpected, he fits with the fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament. And he gives us those stories, remember, of Simeon and Anna at the temple? They've been waiting for the Messiah, and they see this little baby getting brought in by this poor family, and they're really poor, remember? They can only bring pigeons as their offering because they can't afford the the larger animals. So they see this poor family walking into the temple with this little baby, and both of these people are believers. They're born again. They actually welcome him. They accept him for who he truly is. So That'd be another example to me. It's just not an intellectual problem. Uh, even it's not an issue of him being unexpected. It's more an issue of like God has to do something first to our heart for us to welcome it. The other thing I'd add too is I, I completely agree that Jesus, when he first came, he wasn't the king that many people were looking for. But as I like to say, he, he isn't that king yet. I think that's the piece that we miss. I feel like maybe in Christian circles, it's almost become cliche to say he's not the kind of Messiah that the Old Testament predicted. And my response to that is he's not that kind of Messiah yet. He's not done yet. Jesus has a to-do list, and he's only completed some of it. And the, I, Psalm 110 said that he would have a time where he would sit at the right hand of his father until he made his enemies his footstool. So we, we, we're living in that until part, but there is still a coming day when our Lord Jesus will physically return to this world to make it right, and He will be that kind of king. He will be a conquering warrior. He will do all of the things that the Old Testament promised. He just hasn't done it yet. Any, any other thoughts? Those are good, both good thoughts, good questions. Any other ones? All right, let me just go a little bit further. we got a few more minutes, right? So this is from verses 14 through 21. So we got another section. What's the Apostle Paul up to here? So it seems to me that his purpose in this section is to say that Israel is without excuse in their rejection of Jesus. We cannot exercise faith in someone whom we have never heard of, but Paul says that the message about Christ has gone out throughout the whole world. It's a little interesting because he supports this in verse 18 by quoting wording from Psalm 19. So for inquiring minds, I give you a big fat footnote, but you don't have to read footnotes if you don't want to. It's just there if you want to. So the problem is in Psalm 19, it seems to be talking about God's general revelation that goes out through nature, how nature reveals God. So then it's a little bit of a puzzle. How is Paul taking what the psalmist says about general revelation and how is he applying that to uh, the preaching of the gospel? So you can read the, the footnote there later. But I'll continue. Israelites who have rejected the message of the apostles and the prophets before them 
demonstrate that the problem is with them as the hearers. They are a disobedient and obstinate people. That sounds a lot like that passage we looked at in Deuteronomy, doesn't it? So that's what he calls them there in verse 21. Now I know, you know, you could be thinking, I think I've thought this at one point, well, what about the people who've never heard, right? So Paul seems to be saying they're held accountable because the preaching of the gospel has gone out into all the world. But we can always think of exceptions to that. Even today, there's still people in remote places of this world that sadly have probably never heard about Christ. But I think what Paul is doing here is he's saying, but the ones who have, and they have rejected it, they serve as an accurate testing of the entire group of people. So they're, they're you know, not to reduce this to a science experiment, but the sample of people out of all of humanity who have heard and have rejected it, because we all have the same human nature, that means even if the gospel had gone to every single person without exclusion, it also still would be rejected, right? That the people within Israel who are rejecting the gospel because of their hard hearts are just a small sample of the whole problem that all of humanity has. All of humanity left to their own would continue to reject. So however, that quote there in verse 19 demonstrates that Israel's rejection with the salvation of Gentiles preceding the salvation of Israel, it fits with the Old Testament's teaching. So that was it's kind of a wordy way of me to put it. I'll see if I can say that easier. So basically, he's quoting the, the, the Old Testament here to make a point about Israel's rejection. But out of all of the verses that he could have thought of to make that point, he seems to deliberately choose one that also points to their eventual salvation. So he's, he's putting the, both of these together because that's where he wants to eventually go. God has already said he would use Gentiles to provoke Israel to repent. So the quote from Isaiah 65.1 in verse 20 is likely another instance of an Old Testament passage that predicted the eventual salvation of Gentiles. So this is the passage we looked at earlier. Remember, it was from Isaiah 65. I promised you that coming up shortly, Paul would directly quote from it. Well, this is where he does. And I think it's pretty clear if you look at that passage that Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus came, was already predicting that someday the Gentiles would be saved. All right? So the Gentile salvation, while many Jewish people were being rejected, was already predicted in the Old Testament. And we also looked at Deuteronomy 32, 19 through 21. He quotes from that passage in verse 19 to make a very similar point. So let me just read that. So both Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah 65 pointed to the salvation of Gentiles who were not seeking God. But verse 21 from Isaiah uh, shows that God continues to hold out his hands, inviting the people of Israel to repent. The responsibility for not repenting lies with them. All right. So in chapter 9, broadly, Paul's main point was it was never God's intention to save all of Israel. Chapter 10, he makes the point that they still themselves are responsible. God's not responsible for their rejection. The responsibility lies with them. When we come back next week, chapter 11, he's going to address, but what about all of those promises of their salvation? When is that all going to come true? What, 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 what does that mean? Uh, 
mean or imply about God's righteousness if these promises seem to be not coming true. So we'll come back next week and we'll pick up there. All right, thanks for coming tonight.